Titus, the book of Titus. I told you before that Titus is essentially a snapshot of ecclesiology. Uh, another way to say it is it's the cliff notes to how to run a church. It's the cliff notes to how to establish and set up leadership in the church, how everyone is to function in the body of Christ, how to move forward. A parallel to the book of Titus, if you want a good read, is to go to 1 Timothy. He said much of the same things to 1 Timothy, but he expanded a little bit. It's almost as if uh, he ran out of parchment paper or ink when he was writing to Titus, and he had to just cram it into three chapters, and he gives us what I call the cliff notes for ecclesiology. We've already seen in the opening verses... The Apostle Paul's estimation of his own life, what he thought of his life, what he would spend his life upon. And then last week and the week before, we talked about this thing of elders. He told Titus, here's the first thing you need to do to help mend what has begun in these churches on the island of Crete. To get things in order, to set things straight, he said, appoint in every city... In every general area where believers are beginning to gather, you need to appoint men to be elders. To the qualifications for those men, because we can't just put anybody in charge. Amen? We can't just put anybody up front and say, hey, why don't you lead this ship? Why don't you steer the boat? We have to make sure that these men are qualified to do this duty. It is a high calling, indeed. And we looked at last week in verse 6, namely, if any man is above reproach, meaning that... Uh, well, it's kind of a, I call it a, an umbrella qualification to say that if any man is above reproach means that there is nothing to be held against this guy. That technically there is no uh, guilt that lays hold of this man's life so that anyone from the outside or anyone from the inside could be able to say this guy doesn't deserve to be leading this congregation. We just so happen to be in this process ourselves as a church, so it, it makes uh it makes wise sense for us to be looking into the book of Titus and the qualifications for elders. A few weeks ago, I put before you as a congregation four men who are in our elder candidacy program. These four men are going through the theology. They're going through figuring out what are the qualifications and do they line up. And uh, they believe they do. Their families believe they do. And to this point, they've said, okay, I'm in for this. If I qualify and if, it, if the church affirms me, uh, I'm in for this. And so part of that process is to stand them before the congregation and say, these guys are up to be the leaders of this church. They are to be the overseers, to stand above the church and help in love guide this ship, if you will. And part of your job as a congregation is to help answer by him from being a leader. And you have the opportunity for the rest of this month, we've given you a full month to write back to me and say, here's what I have against this person. And that is your duty and your responsibility to help protect this congregation, amen, to help protect the flock of God, that we don't get led astray by someone who doesn't qualify for that position. So you have a month to do that. The next qualification he gave after that is uh, he goes directly into the home. And you remember I said uh, of the next qualification, it says that they are to be husbands of one wife. And essentially what that means is that they are to be one woman men, one woman man. I got my plurals and singulars all mixed up here. That they're only to be about their spouse, right? You get that? That they're not, uh, it's not an injunction against polygamy, although, but, I mean, that was obvious, right? They're not to have multiple wives. What he's saying here is they have to be the kind of guy that's devoted to the wife they have. Amen? And that's really a higher, that's really a higher deal. That's really a, a raising the bar type deal. That they are totally and completely devoted to the wife that they have in heart, mind, and hand. Amen? All right, next thing he said was that, and this was a tough one, we spent some time on it, that their children, verse 6, their children must be believers. 
they're at the appropriate age where they can certainly uh, become uh, Christ followers, then they should fall into that category. They should not be those who are categorized, is what the scripture says, categorized, placed in the category of those who are either, at the end of the verse, he says, riotous or rebellious. And basically what this means is that we can't have the disconnect that if we put a guy in charge of the church, the children of God, the flock of God, the house of God, that his own house is jacked up, right? Right? That's a hard word. We, we laugh and we kind of mock and we tongue-in-cheek, always kid that the preacher's kid is always the worst, right? Well, uh, it's a hard word here, and I told you that if my kids, once they get the age where they can make that decision, if they go astray and they're categorized, they're known to be unruly, they're known to be riotous, they're out living their own life apart from Christ and the church, then what that essentially says, right, what that essentially communicates is that perhaps, perhaps, it could be all about the child and their sin, right? But it communicates perhaps to the world that this guy is in charge of God's children, but his children are all out of control. Let me read you this very quickly. No matter how godly and self-giving a man himself may be in the Lord's service. Did you catch that? No matter how godly and self-giving a man himself may be in the Lord's service, children of his who do not believe and who are known for their dissipation and rebellion distract from the credibility of his leadership. Unfortunate but true. If he cannot bring his own children to salvation and to godly living, he will not have the confidence of the church in his ability to lead other unbelievers to salvation or to lead his congregation in godly living. Unbelieving, rebellious children will be a serious reproach on his life and ministry. All right, now we're on verse 7 here. That's your summary. That's where we've been. Those are the initial qualifications for the elders that Paul gives. Let's jump down to verse 7. He's going to go away from the home. Translation for you to understand that that word literally means overseer, one who stands above and helps direct the vision, the doctrine of this congregation. The overseer must be, and he says here again, above reproach as God's steward. This time, he says it even more emphatically in the Greek language. He must be above reproach. No questions, no questions, no questions, no doubts about it. He must be above reproach. And then he adds a little phrase here at the end that's interesting. He must be above reproach as God's, notice number one, that he doesn't belong to himself. Possessive, he belongs to God. And he belongs to God in a certain Way, And you see the word steward. Let me tell you what a steward is and what a steward does. A steward is essentially a keeper or a manager of a house. It's a compound word used here for steward, and it literally means, uh, the compound words mean house and to arrange or to order. And so a steward is one who arranges or keeps in order the house. Okay? And we're not just talking about... Uh, ground keeping here. We're not just talking about cleaning house. We're talking about the house in general, that he keeps the house. All right, you follow me? Listen to this. In ancient Roman and Greek societies, this is the context in which Paul is talking about a steward, all right? In ancient Greek and Roman societies, a steward managed a household on behalf of the owner. In addition to caring for all the needs of family members, they could be responsible and accountable for household finances and for making sure, for example, in an agricultural society, that crops were properly planted to assign and to supervise their work. They would make sure that those who were sick or wounded or cared for 
and even dispensed discipline when necessary. Do you get all that? you understand what a steward does in Paul's day? A steward had absolute authority in the house from the owner. It was delegated to him. Now, let me apply it to God's house here. Listen to this. I'm going to read the same paragraph, but I'm going to plug in some different words. In the church, a steward of God also manages the household on behalf of the owner. In addition to caring for all the needs of family members, they are responsible and accountable for household finances and for making sure, for example, in a spiritual society, that the evangelistic crops were properly planted, cultivated, and harvested. They would make sure that those family members who were sick or wounded were cared for and even dispensed discipline when necessary. Stewards often have oversight of all the household servants, like pastoral staff and support staff, to provide for them and to assign and supervise their work. Scripture often says that God's church is his house. He is the head. But he has delegated to certain men of high qualification this responsibility that he would call them his gods. They are under his authority stewards. That he says to them, I put you in charge of my house. I put you in charge of my home for those who would be in leadership of God's house. He says, these men are to be above reproach. In fact, they must be above reproach as God's stewards. They must be able to manage God's house in its entirety. Big qualification there. Let's go on to the next one. Not only that, it says that he is not self-willed. Not self-willed. We get an interesting English word from the Greek word used here. The English word that derives from the Greek word that Paul uses is the word audacity. He's not audacious. Let me unpack it a little further. He's not the kind of guy who is so self-willed that it's about him. And everything that he does is to accomplish what he desires to accomplish. And no matter who's in the way, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what the consequences might be of that decision, he is going to make things turn out his way. He would have the audacity to be concerned with self above the entire body. He's not to be self-willed. Not to be self-willed. Aggressive and stubborn. These are characteristics, by the way, that are often honored by the leaders in our world. That we would find a guy who is self-willed enough, ambitious enough, stubborn enough to plow through, not let anything get in his way, but to accomplish the task. And that can't be a mark of a man who will sit in the elder board room. It's not about him. Remember, he's God's steward and he does things God's way and he accomplishes things in God's way so that he's not just ramrodding, if you will. He's not just forcing things down the throat of the church. That's not that's pretty obvious. But let me say this. It's more than saying that he doesn't have the occasional outbursts. It's more than he just doesn't have the occasional outbursts of anger. It means that he doesn't have a short fuse that is easily lit. It means that his general temperament in life He's not a guy who's quick to come to blows. He's not a guy who's quick to argue. He's not a guy who's quick to be defensive. He's not a guy who's quick, because of his temper, to be bitter or to be bent in his anger in general in life that when we put him in the elder boardroom, it's going to carry over into the church. And that just makes sense, right? 
I mean, these are practical deals here. We don't want a guy in leadership of the church who's just generally a bitter, angry man. It won't bode well for the congregation. It won't bode well for the church. Listen to what James 1.20 says. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So a man who would say that I'm justifiably getting angry to achieve the righteousness of God, that I'm going to uh, burst in anger because of righteous uh, motives, well, he's off. He's off. That's not God's way. Proverbs 14 says that the one who is quick-tempered acts foolishly. The one who is quick-tempered acts foolishly. My translation is, if you're this come in charge, would be foolish on our part. Amen? Let's go to the next one here. We're going to end up spending a little more time on this one. The next qualification here, verse 7, that he be not addicted to wine. Not addicted to wine. It's a great, great word picture in the language Paul uses here. The word that Paul uses here paints this picture that says exactly this, that he is not the companion of wine. Or that wine is not found alongside this man. It's not known to be alongside this man in general. You get in the picture there? That uh, he's not the typical frat boy with the red Dixie cup. That you just know, khaki pants, button-up shirt, red Dixie cup. You follow me here? Any of you know anything about fraternities? Yeah. He's not known to be alongside wine. That when you get a picture of these men, this isn't the picture you got. All right? That's not it. Not addicted to wine. Wine is not his companion. While Scripture... I'm going to read this to you because I want this to be absolutely clear. Listen. While Scripture never requires absolute prohibition by believers, it does come with serious warnings. Did you catch that? Because some of you are going to have a problem with this later and say, he said we go around drinking like crazy. Listen to me. While Scripture never requires absolute prohibition by believers... It does come with serious warnings. The general concern of Scripture is one of control. Alright? Now follow me here. Alcohol certainly has the capability of controlling or impairing one of great caution. A person in spiritual leadership is to be clear-headed in control of his senses and judgment at all times. Does that make sense? I mean, why put a guy at the wheel who's just... A picture of a drunk at the wheel. He's out of control. He doesn't have control of his facilities. Now listen, further, God has often called the leaders of his people to even higher standards. Okay? God has often called the leaders of his people in Scripture to even higher standards. He instructed Aaron and the other high priests in Leviticus 10, Do not drink wine or strong drink, neither you nor your sons with you, when you come into the tent of meeting, so that you may not die. You catch that? Aaron was a priest, and one of his duties and his son's duties was to go in and minister worship in, in God's, uh, God's presence. And there's one place where you don't want to be off your game. It's in God's presence. You do not want to go into God's presence aloof. You do not want to go into God's presence stumbling. You do not want to go into God's presence out of your head. You following me? You want to go into God's presence humbly 
and with all sobriety. God never plays about his worship. God never, um, le- God never lowers the bar when it comes to how we worship him. One gave a similar instruction for not spiritual leaders, but political leaders of God's people. Listen to this. It's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. You see the danger? You see the danger? That the leader of the people, given to wine, would be off of his game. And who suffers? Those who follow him. That can't mark this man. Uh, Some of you know about the Nazarite vow taken by guys like Samson and Samuel and John the Baptist. These guys voluntarily committed their lives to special service for God. This was the special forces, if you will, of God's army. And they required, uh, this commitment required considerable amount of self-denial. Listen to what Scripture says these guys are to do. Abstain from wine and strong drink. Drink no vinegar, whether made from wine or strong drink. Neither drink any grape juice nor eat fresh or dried grapes. All the days of his separation, I mean the time that he has set his life aside to be of God's special use. All the days of his separation, he shall not eat anything that is produced by the grapevine from the seeds or even the skin. In effect, the Nazarite said to himself and to the world, I willingly forgo comfort, personal recognition, wealth, popularity, and anything else that would hinder my highest level of dedication to the Lord. It could also be argued that when Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, uh, do not drink water exclusively, but put a little wine with your water for your ailments. And, your... and Paul has to admonish him and even strongly encourage him, listen, Timothy, put a little wine in your water to help your stomach. Now, the background of this is that they didn't have purified water like we do, right? They didn't have Brita filters. And so the water was tainted, and the alcohol mixed with the, wa- mixed with the water would be a purification process for that. And it would help kill infection. It would help kill bacteria. And so Paul says, man, do that. Do that. But here's what I want you to understand is that the indication is, the, the inference is, that Timothy wasn't doing that. Most likely because of his commitment to God. Most likely because of his special service. Because he had other things that were more important than his liberty or his freedom. He didn't do it. And Paul has to say, hey, do this if need be. Can an elder drink? Biblically, yeah. Can he get drunk? Biblically, no. We often see in the New Testament passages that sound a little bit like this. Be you not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Do you see the control issue here? Don't let wine control you. Be filled with the Spirit. Not the Spirit's. But the Spirit, great play on words. Be filled with the Spirit. Be controlled by the Spirit. We can't have a guy who's controlled by anything else. Because then he leads this congregation astray. Maybe in a moment of weakness, maybe in a moment where he's... Can he ever afford to lose control? No. Lest he fall under the, the reproach which he must be above. Lest he fall under the reproach, which he must be above. He can never be out of control. More than this, he must be one who is willing to put aside even his freedoms for the sake of the work. Romans 14 says, It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything 
by which you might cause another brother to stumble. I'm looking for guys who we can put in front of the church and they'll say, you know what, my freedoms are X, Y, and Z and I understand my freedoms. But you know what, if need be, for the sake of the body, I don't even have to do what I can do. Are you getting the picture of this kind of man? That he's not just the kind of guy who's not a drunkard, but he's the kind of man who would willingly put his own freedoms and liberties to the side for the sake of those he leads. That's the kind of guy we're looking for. The elder is a picture of sobriety, steadfast, never tipsy. Two more here. Let me blow through these. He is also not pugnacious. What a great word, pugnacious. It literally means he's not a striker. He's not a striker. Uh, Words that will never come out of an elder's mouth, that should never come out of an elder's mouth, are, let's take this outside. Right? We can't put a guy up here. These are pretty straightforward, folks. We can't put a guy in leadership of the church who, to solve any sort of issue, is going to come to blows about it. We can't be running the church with our fists. Amen? Do you want that kind of guy to follow? No. This terminology also implies that he uh, has no part in not just physical, but verbal meanness, abusiveness, retaliation. No matter how cruelly provoked, this person is, again, self-controlled. Self-controlled. That he's not going to just take you outside and either physically or verbally ream you up and down because you're off track. He's got to be the kind of guy who lovingly shepherds the flock of God. Not by compulsion. But out of love, he shepherds the flock that the great shepherd himself gave his life for. And Christ is always the picture for any leaders in the church. That the picture of Christ is that he laid his life down for the body. So, in our case, these four men, do they fit that criteria? Are they men who are self-willed? Are they men who are uh, not above reproach? Are they men who are given to wine? That wine is their companion? Are they men who would just assume fight you about it? Or is that the picture you get when you think about the four men we put in front of you? And always remember, as I've said uh, each time we talked about this, that these guys are to be leaders so that they are examples to us. We could all apply these to our own lives. Amen? They only set the example for us. I mean, they're not just uh, exalted because of their above reproachness, if you will. Yes, it is a good word. He's picking on me, guys. He is to be exalted because of his qualifications so that we look to him and emulate those men. That's the goal. So that we all become more like Christ. Well, there's one more. Not fond of sword gain there at the end of verse 7. Not fond of sword gain. Um... This is an interesting one. I, I imagine that, um, that this was, although he mentions it here, I, I imagine that it was less needed in Paul's day maybe than it's needed in our day. Not fond of sword gain that you get a guy who, uh, who might fulfill the role of elder, overseer, um, pastor, bishop, all those interchangeable terms used to describe the men who lead God's flock. I imagine that in Paul's day, 
this was not as much needed as it is in our day. Let me explain. In Paul's day, to volunteer to lead Christ's church puts you in harm's way. It put the crosshairs of the enemy directly upon you. And it does still in our day. But also, let me say this. The, uh, the chances of sordid gain through ministry were not as strong as they are today. In fact, to be a leader of God's flock in that day almost put your life on the line. You follow me? Today, we have men who step up every day who want... You hear about them on TV? Yeah. Um, Basically, the picture here is we don't put a guy in leadership who whose life is devoted to and spent on gain of material things in this world. If you want to be an elder, if you want to be an overseer in God's church, your life can't be about your career alone. Your life can't be about your achievements in this world. Your life cannot be about your financial improvement in this world. That the next house you get, the next car you're going to get, the next uh, improvement you're going to do to your house. Your life can't be about building yourself up, building your own personal wealth up to the degree that you therefore cannot be focused in any real way on the kingdom of God. You cannot serve both God and man. If your heart's over here, if your heart's over here, that your life is spent on and devoted to gaining everything you can in this world, then we can't put you in the elder boardroom. We have to have guys who who'll do their job, who'll work hard, who'll be ambitious, make as much money as you can the right way, with dignity, do not outweigh their calling to be leaders in God's church. That, are you following me? And once again, once again, these men are to be our examples. That is to be true of the rest of us as well. That we look at the men who God puts as stewards over his house, stewards over his children, and that we see in their lives that their lives are not about themselves. Their lives are not about spending their time, energy, and money about, uh, to get more money to get more stuff that when you die, your kids are just going to have a big garage sale and sell anyway. Right? These men have to be men who would give everything they have to God. You know, Mark, uh, one of the things I always look for is these men tend to struggle with whether or not they need to get out of whatever they're doing and go into the ministry. And I always say, hey, slow down. You know, you don't need to be full-time in the ministry. Keep Doing what you're doing, do it well. Do, do your lawyering well, do your cooking well, do whatever you do, do it well. But you tend to see in these men that their focus is so upon God and His kingdom and His flock that they have this tension inside of them that says, I wonder if I just need to get out of this world stuff altogether and go and work for God fully and completely. They always have this tension and struggle within them that says, I just want to do God's work. The rest of this... I'm going to pay the bills. 
I'm going to provide for my family. I'm going to provide for my children. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to be a great example in the world on how to be a businessman, how to, how to do these sort of things. But my heart, to a short list of positives, what are these men supposed to look like? What are they to do positively? So I'll stop there. Let's pray.